I was excited to share last week something I learned in law school, which is a case that we read. If you didn't, if you weren't able to listen to last week's sermon, this one is sort of a sequel. So if you're watching at home, pause and go listen to the last one and then come back. But I was excited to share something that I learned in law school, a case, but I, I try my best to not share with you the number one thing that I'm learning in law school, the thing they teach to all lawyers more than anything else. If you know a lawyer, you've ever met a lawyer in your life, you know that this is the number one thing we learn, which is basically the more words, the better. And I'm trying not to let that uh, wash over into the preaching side of things, but lawyers kind of operate on the more words, the better. And usually it's because we get paid by the word. So uh, a couple of, I, I can prove it to you that this is true. A few, a few phrases you might have heard before. Um, think about aiding and abetting. This is helping somebody commit a crime, aiding and abetting. You cannot abet unless you aid. The two words mean the same thing, but we have two words, aiding and abetting, right? It's the same thing, but we have two words. And this is all over the place in the law, right? When you write your will, you don't write your will. You write your will and your last will and testament. There's no such thing as a testament. It's the same thing as a will. But you write your will and testament. We see this all over the place. Cease and desist. You can't desist unless you cease. But you have to cease and desist, right? You take property free and clear from all encumbrances. The judgment is final and conclusive. It's both. It's not just one. It's both. My favorite is from now and henceforth. You see this all the time. Like something could not be, could be one without the other one, now and henceforth. We have them in threes too, right? You get uh, um, in your will. You don't just give property. You give, devise, and bequeath something to somebody else, right? It all means the same thing, but we just have to stack in more words. My favorite one, or the one that applies to what we're doing right now, um, you've all heard this one before, rules and regulations, right? Rules and regulations. Make sure you follow the rules and the regulations. <laughs> They're exactly the same thing, but you got to follow both the rules and the regulations. What's funny about this one and what applies here today is that they both come from the same root word. They both come from the Latin word regula, okay? So it's literally, it's not only do they mean the same thing, they're the same exact word. <laughs> Lawyers are still going to try and use both. So call a lawyer on that next time you hear them use rules and regulations. But the word regula, the Latin word regula means straight stick, okay? And this went through old French and got all mangled up and in English came out looking like the word rule, okay? So regula in Latin just means straight stick. That's where we get the word regulation, something that uh, it follows a certain rule or is straight. The word regular, which means follows the regulation, and the word irregular, which means doesn't follow the regulation. But this came out in English as the word rule. The best thing, the most important thing to the ancient Romans that came up with the word regula and the tool of a regula was that it was a straight stick and they used these things to make straight lines. In English, this came out as the word ruler. You probably used one of these 12 inches long back in grade school to draw shapes, squares and triangles and make sure the lines were straight. The point of a ruler, the point of a regula, same thing, is to keep a line from going astray. When you draw a line alongside the ruler, you can be sure when the line is done that it will be straight. The point of a ruler is to give us an idea of what straight means. So you can see, as you think about this word rule, how it actually evolved over time to mean someone who makes rules, right? The word ruler means both a straight stick in English and the person who makes rules. But you can see why this one evolved into this one, right? The straight stick uh, sets a standard, right? It tells us what straight means. And the person who gives the rules that we live by, our ruler, is doing the same thing, right? So the older word is actually the straight stick, and that evolved into the person that makes the rules, but they're doing the same thing, right? It means exactly the same thing. A ruler 
both the person and the stick, establishes an independent standard, and it judges whether or not the facts line up with that standard. So last week we talked about truth, and we defined truth as that which is in accordance with fact or reality. And that's a definition that we as Christians need to know because we worship Jesus Christ and he called himself the truth. So we need to know what the word truth means. What it means is that which is in accordance with fact or reality. And last week we called truth the measuring stick or the ruler of reality, right? Truth is the ruler of reality in both senses of the word ruler because truth measures reality, but truth also sets the bounds and the laws of reality. How do you know whether a line is straight or not? Well, hold it up to a ruler. If it lines up, then it's straight. How do you know if something is true or not? Well, hold it up with reality. And if it accords with reality, by definition, it's true. Now, this is easy for a question like, is the sky blue? You're wondering whether that proposition is true. Does it accord with reality? Well, walk outside, look up. There it is. It's blue. So that that proposition of the sky being blue accords with reality. But it gets a little more tricky when you start to think about other contexts like your thoughts or your beliefs. How do you know if your thoughts or beliefs are true? And I'll give you a quick example. I think that I think it's um, undisputed. It's undisputable that everyone here this morning, everyone watching at home, all of us are carrying around beliefs in our head that are not true. We don't know it or else we'd stop believing them, but we carry around beliefs that are not true. And most commonly, people's beliefs they have in their head that aren't true are things they believe about themselves. So this morning, you've probably already said some things to yourself in your head about yourself, uh, truths that you believe about yourself. And some of them, I guarantee, are probably not true. Some people have already gotten up today and recited a truth in your head, something like, I'm not good for anything. I don't really have a purpose anymore. I'm always going to struggle with this. I'm never going to get over it. That's just the way I am. Now, whether you came up with that or whether somebody else told you that, what you need when that truth or when that belief is rolling around in your head is a ruler. You need to measure it against an objective standard to see whether or not it accords with reality, whether or not it's straight or crooked. But for us as Christians, since reality is three-dimensional, reality is infinitely more complicated than a line on a page, we can't measure beliefs against a stick. We need a more complex ruler to measure more complex beliefs. And so instead of a stick, God gave us a story. He gave us a whole person. He gave us Jesus to be our ruler. And so as we study the story of Jesus, the teachings, how he acted, how he treated people, how he believed, what he told us about who we are, we start to get this idea of a straight line. And we can use that to measure our own beliefs. And some of them are going to turn out to be wavy and crooked. And that's how we'll know that they're not true. Last week, we studied the most important trial in the history of the world, which was the trial of truth itself, or I should say, the trial of truth himself. When Jesus Christ was on trial in the Roman courts before Pontius Pilate and in the religious courts before the Jewish leaders. And we studied how reality itself started to melt down into absurdity as these people discarded truth. The judge himself said, what is truth? Nothing is true. The religious leaders said, nothing is true anymore. Our king is Caesar. We don't care about truth. We just want Jesus dead. And this week, we're going to follow that up and learn a little bit more about this story of truth. Because... Learning and understanding about truth, holding the ruler in your hand, meeting the ruler of your life, it's not enough on its own. There's more that we need to do to this story. See, Jesus said, and we read this last week, Jesus said, the reason that I was born, the reason that I came into the world is to testify to the truth. 
And so we as Christians need to be resilient in our post-truth world that doesn't believe in an objective standard or a straight line anymore in testifying to the truth in the middle of our culture of lies. And I want to talk a little bit more this week about how we do that and what that looks like. Knowing about the truth, meeting the ruler for yourself will change your life. But that's not where your job ends. As a Christian, that's where your job begins. You meet the ruler and it changes your life. Good. Now you are sent out. And now there's more to do. And so we're going to look at the part where the ruler comes back from the dead and sends us out. Turn in your Bible to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. The living truth, Jesus Christ, has been tried unjustly and murdered unlawfully. And that's how the ruler of reality, that's how the truth itself was able to enter into death and return, having measured death itself against a straight line and telling us the truth about death, which is this. Death is not the end. Death is not all-powerful, and it can be beaten through the life and love of God. And so Jesus came back from the dead, bearing that new and previously unknown truth for us. And that's the truth we live in and celebrate here today. Death is not the end for us. Through the power of God, we can keep living in life. But also, this is not the end of Jesus' mission. Coming back from the dead seems like the end of Jesus' story, but it's actually just the beginning. See, Jesus has been training his disciples all throughout his ministry to carry on this message after he leaves, to start the church that we're a part of right now today. But there's a little bit of a problem, and we're going to pick up in John chapter 20, verse 19, and see what these followers are doing. All right, let's start reading in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, where he had been stabbed with a spear when he was crucified. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
Now, there's one more chapter in the Gospel of John. If you're looking at the page in front of you, this was chapter 20. There's one more chapter, chapter 21. But most scholars of this book believe, and I agree with them, that this, what we just read, is the end of the story. And chapter 21 functions as more of like an epilogue to the story. It's another chapter setting off the next story, which is the beginning of the early church. But this chapter is the conclusion of the story in the Gospel of John. And one thing that makes me sure of that is that verse 31, which we just read, is without a doubt, the thesis statement of John's gospel. Now, some of the students listening just cringed when they heard me say the word thesis statement, but hang on. A thesis statement is, and you you know this, this is why you cringed. A thesis statement is the thing that sums up the entire argument of your paper, right? When you're writing a paper, you have to have it all up in one nutshell in a sentence. And John does this for us. The last sentence right here is the thesis of his whole gospel. He says, I wrote this entire thing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You, the reader, you, the person who picks up John's gospel and reads the word, he's, he's talking to us here this morning, thousands of years later. The point of this is that we might believe that Jesus is the son of God and that we, the readers, by believing, would find life in his name. Now, if you've read through all four gospels before, and if you haven't, definitely read through all four gospels. But if you've never read through, or if you've read through them before, you know that John's gospel is different from the other three. Right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow a similar storytelling mode and a similar timeline of events, and they relate most to the same events, but John is different. And one of the biggest reasons that John's gospel is different from the other three is because John was written to a different audience. John's gospel, we know, was the last one that was written. It was written decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke when John was in his 70s or maybe even in his 80s. And so he wasn't writing to contemporaries. A lot of the people that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were writing their letters to, they had probably met Jesus as well. They had probably heard some of Jesus' sermons that were written down in those Gospels, but John was writing to the next generation. He was writing to Christians who were born who had never seen Jesus and who had never met him before. He didn't write his Gospel for Mary or for Peter or for Doubting Thomas. He wrote it for people like you and me, people who would never get to see Jesus, who would never get to lay eyes on him but who desperately needed the life that could only be found in his name. John, you can tell, is proud of having been able to see Jesus himself. And uh, you can see that in a different letter that he wrote called 1 John. Around the time after he wrote this gospel, he wrote letters to the early church. They're later in your New Testament, and one of them is called 1 John. It's the first letter we have that he wrote. And listen to how important it is. I just want to read a few verses from this. Listen to how important it is to John that he was able to physically see and hear and touch Jesus while Jesus was here on earth. This is the very first sentence of John's letter, right? John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. All right, listen to this. That which was from the beginning, he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. See, up to the point where Jesus is talking to his disciples in that upper room and encountering doubting Thomas, up to that point, the only faith that was possible was a faith that had seen, a faith that had touched. Everybody who believes in Jesus at this point in the story where Jesus is there in the upper room has seen Jesus. Everyone who believes in Jesus at this point has walked the earth at the same time as him, has probably heard him teach, met people that have probably seen him do miracles, 
But by the time John is writing his gospel and writing this letter, the balance is shifting to where most people in the church are in a new generation that never got to see. And so John is saying, you need to understand from my testimony, I did. John knows that we're going to have to do something he never had to do, which is believe without seeing. In fact, John knows that the task we're going to have to do is something that none of the disciples could do. None of them pulled this off, belief without seeing. See, we just read John's account of the resurrected Jesus appearing to them. But in all three of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's one common theme, which is that before the disciples get to see him, somebody tells them that he's alive. They just hear it from word of mouth and never, ever, once do they believe. In Mark's account, Mary Magdalene finds Jesus at the tomb, and she rushes back to tell the disciples, I saw him, he's alive, and they don't believe her. In Luke's account, Cleopas and his friend are on the road to Emmaus. They see Jesus. They run seven miles straight back to Jerusalem, and they tell the disciples, we saw him, he's alive, just like he said he would, and they don't believe. In Luke's account later, the women who found Jesus at the tomb, they come back and they tell the disciples, but Luke writes, their words seemed like nonsense to the disciples. And then later in Luke, Peter, who saw Jesus, Peter's trying to convince the disciples, no, no, he's alive. I know you haven't seen it, but just take my word for it, he's alive. They don't believe, and Jesus appears in their midst, and they don't believe. So Jesus lets them touch the holes in his hands and the hole in his side, and they still don't believe. They think he might be a ghost, so they ask him to eat something, because ghosts, everybody knows ghosts can't eat. So Jesus eats a piece of fish, and they say, okay, I guess it's real, I guess he's alive. They finally break down and believe. So when John asks us, to believe in something we've never seen. He understands how hard that is. None of the disciples who followed Jesus for years could do it. And even after they see, even after they're able to touch the holes in Jesus' hands, do they really believe? Think about the story we just read. There's one detail in that story that jumped out at me, and I hope it jumped out at you when we just read it, that shows that maybe even after they saw Jesus, they still didn't believe. And that detail is that the door is still locked. The door is still locked. Look back at verse 19 of John chapter 20 that we just read. Look back at verse 19. John says, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. They're afraid because these Jewish leaders just killed Jesus. Maybe they're going to come kill us. So they're hiding in the upper room and the door is locked. But Jesus appears in the room anyway through the locked door. And he tells them something in verse 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's it. Go. That's their message. Their final command from their master who's risen from the dead. They're sent. But look at verse 26. In verse 26, we see a week later, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and the doors were locked. Jesus sent them out. He told them to go. The church was springing into life. The ultimate movement had begun. The kingdom of God was being unleashed on the world through these men who had been trained for this purpose. But a week later, the door was still locked. If you've ever wondered what happened in the first week after Jesus rose from the dead in the first week of the church, the answer is nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. These men saw the resurrected Christ. They touched the holes in his hands. He told them to go. And a week goes by, and where are they? They're in the same room. The door is still locked. And you've got to realize how important this was. Do, do you see the importance here? Millions of souls, billions of souls hang in the balance if these men can't find the courage to get out of this room. 
What's at stake here is nothing less than the future of the entire church. Jesus has tasked these men to spread the word. He's trained them to be the church fathers and spread the word, but they're hiding because they're afraid. Humanity's entire hope of salvation that Jesus was trying to start when he came and died and appeared to them could have died there in that locked room because they were afraid. Because they had seen the murderous crowds we talked about last week, the truth killers. They knew if they go out into a culture that has denied and killed truth, a culture that kind of starts to look like ours, the more that you look at how fiercely they denied truth, they themselves might be ostracized or canceled or killed. Now Thomas gets a bad rap. Poor Thomas just happened to be the one that wasn't there. It could have been any of them. He might have just gone. He might have been the one that drew the short straw and had to go out and get food and bring it back to the locked room. And while he was gone, Jesus appeared. It could have been any of them. I don't think any of them would have believed unless they got a chance to see. I mean, look at verse 20. When Jesus showed up, the first thing he did, nobody asked him to do it. The first thing he did was take a look at my hands, take a look at my side. I know you're not going to believe unless you see it, right? So he shows them. But like all the other disciples, Thomas wants proof. Like all the other disciples, Thomas knew Jesus personally. He'd followed him around for years. He'd seen him. He'd heard him teach his lessons, do his miracles. He'd touched him just like John had. Thomas had something that so many of us wish we could have. I'm guilty of this. I'm sure we all are. We sit around and we daydream or we wonder about what it would be like to get to see Jesus. What did he look like? What did his voice sound like when he was teaching? To get to feel his hands touch us just like he touched those lepers back then. How many sleepless nights have we laid awake when prayer doesn't feel good enough? Or when the pain in our lives feels more real than our own faith? When God feels too distant, too far away, too mysterious to possibly be real? And we lay there and we make the same demands of God that Thomas made. I want to see you. I want proof. Speak to me with a voice I can hear with my ears and then I'll believe. That's why I love how in verse 28, when Jesus does show up, Thomas, it turns out, was all talk. You see Jesus shows up and he says, hey, Thomas, go ahead, touch my hand. Go ahead like you said you would. Put your hand in the hole in my side. And he even orders him to do it. He says, go ahead and do it. But look how Thomas reacts. He just says, my Lord and my God. I don't think Thomas ever actually did it. I don't think he ever actually reached out and touched Jesus. And I don't think any of us would if we could see him face to face either. Confronted by the living, breathing ruler of reality, Thomas falls at his feet. Because all of a sudden, Jesus is more than just a teacher. He's more than just a master. He's more than some academic exercise or a philosophical necessity. Jesus is here from the dead, and he's undoubtedly Lord and God. In all of John's gospel, Thomas is the first person to address Jesus as God. In the very first sentence, John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So we know from the first sentence that Jesus is God. But it's not until the last story in the entire gospel that somebody finally says it. And you notice that Jesus' last words here, his last words in all four gospels, except for the epilogue in chapter 21, are not addressed to Thomas. In verse uh, 29, they're addressed to you. 
Jesus does something that in theater or in TV shows they call breaking the fourth wall. Have you heard about this, breaking the fourth wall? It's where you turn, you're talking to the character in the show next to you, and you turn and you look at the camera and you talk to the audience. And you say something to them, breaking the fourth wall of the stage, so to speak. And Jesus here breaks the fourth wall. He says, Thomas, you believe because you saw me. And you weren't going to believe until you laid eyes on me. But, and then he turns and he looks right out at us. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When Jesus spoke these words, there was nobody yet who fit into that category. Everybody at that time who believed had also seen Jesus was speaking into the future to a new generation of people who didn't exist yet, who were going to believe, but like us, would never get to see. And in that sentence, there's an implied promise. Do you see it? The implied promise that belief without sight is possible. Is possible. The disciples were hiding up there in that locked room for a week, even after they'd been told to go out by a man who had been raised from the dead, because they were afraid of the truth killers outside. How long have you been hiding in that upstairs room? All of us know that Jesus rose from the dead. We know the same truth the disciples do, a truth that for most of us has completely transformed our lives. All of us know the mandate in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 or here in John chapter 20 where Jesus says, go, now that your life has been changed and you have the Holy Spirit, go and share it with the world around you. But so many of us are still in that room, still with the doors locked because we're afraid. In a really real sense, the gospel is still trapped in that locked upper room in the first week after Jesus' resurrection every single day. And we have to make the choice every single day to unlock that door and step out into a world who hates what we believe and that doesn't understand what we believe and preach a truth that could get us killed. But if you decide because of your fear or because of your uncertainty to keep the gospel locked in that room, waiting for permission, waiting for an invitation, or waiting for something that you were never promised, which is a chance to see and touch and hear Jesus for yourself, you're going to deprive the people around you who God has put in your life and trusted you to minister to of the chance to hear the truth that could save their lives. People who are carrying around lies about themselves, these crooked lines, these false beliefs about who they are that are dying for a ruler to set them straight. And you know what it is, and we can't afford to keep it locked in a room. We have to do what Jesus did and what he called us to do, which is testify to the truth. Our discussion last week about truth was incomplete because the ruler isn't just for us to measure the lines in our own minds and the lines in our own hearts to see if they're straight. It was never meant to be ours for to stay with us because knowing what's true is gonna lead to belief and life. And like we talked about, that's the thesis statement. That's the point of the gospel, but it's not enough just to know it for yourself. You have to carry out Jesus' final command to his followers, which is as the father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, how did the father send him? He said, as the father has sent me, how was it? Well, we read it last week, what he said. He said, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. So as the Father has sent me to testify to the truth, I am sending you to testify to the truth. Have you been testifying to the truth? To the people that God has put in your way, in your life? Right now, I think more than ever before in the 2,000 year history of the church, the gospel feels trapped. 
there's never been an Easter like the Easter of 2020, has there? Where all the churches across the entire globe had their doors locked. There's never been Sundays like these Sundays this year in 2020, this spring and this summer, and for who knows how much longer, where in so many ways we have to keep our doors locked. Or even though we can open, we're so limited in the way that we can do church and have community. And it starts to feel more and more as we're going through this, like we're in that upper room with the doors locked. And I know that our enemy, that Satan, is rejoicing at this. That this past Easter, when he looked around the world at all those churches with all their doors locked, he was rejoicing because it reminded him of that first week after the resurrection when those doors were locked and the church was trapped in a room and he thought he had won. But he's wrong today for the same reason he was wrong then. Because the church is not a room. The church is not a bunch of buildings. The church is us. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. We take it with us into our homes, into our jobs, wherever we go. The church is not a building. The church is a people. But at the same time, our ability to evangelize like we want to, our ability to evangelize like we've been trained to, to spread the good news to our communities, has been crippled by the situation in 2020, by this lockdown. I don't think it's a stretch to say that events this year have forced the gospel back into that room in a lot of really real ways. But the time is coming, and God willing, the time will be here soon when we can open those doors, when once again we won't have to be afraid of what's outside, when we can unleash the gospel and the evangelism just like we've been trained to do back out into the world. Are we ready for that? Have you used this time to prepare for that? When things finally get back to normal, and someday they will get back to normal, are you going to be able to look back at this weird quarantine of 2020, the time when you were locked up, and say that you used that time to grow closer to God, that you used that time to measure the lines in your brain and in your heart and see what was true? Are you going to say you used that time to build discipline and knowledge and resilience? Because the church isn't some building. The church is you. We need you. We carry the church around in our own hearts to spread to the people around us just like somebody once spread it to us. And I want to emphasize while I'm talking about this that our goal is not to convert people. Jesus' goal was never to convert people. We need to remove conversion from our list of goals. Jesus wasn't trying to do that. He said the reason I was born was not to convert people. It was to testify to the truth. Not to convert, just to testify. In other words, we're not trying to draw lines for people. People will draw their own lines. All we're trying to do is give them a ruler. We're trying to hold this ruler up to the lines people have drawn, the beliefs that they have to judge against an objective standard whether or not they're true. That's our goal here as we sit in this upper room with the doors locked, waiting to unleash the kingdom of God, to testify to the truth with boldness and resilience, to share with people the love that we've learned from our own ruler. Because we don't live in a world like Thomas. We don't live in a world like Mary got to live in or like John got to live in. We live in a world 2,000 years removed from the physical Jesus who you could touch and see. But Jesus promised us, you don't need to see to believe. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, which means there will be people who did not get to see that can still believe. It's possible. The highest form of certainty is not sight. 
we're tricked into thinking that our five senses give us the highest form of certainty because we live in a scientific and empirical culture that wants to measure everything based on the physical world and use the scientific method to measure. And if you can't measure it, then it's not real. And so we start to think that, that sight and that hearing is the highest form of certainty, but we don't live by that. We don't act like that. I don't trust my sight. I take off these glasses and I'm blind. I can't see any of you. I put on a mask. Some of you have this, the glasses people, you put on a mask and you try to breathe and it fogs up your glasses so you take them off because you can't see and then you can't see because you don't have them on. I don't trust my eyes. They're not reliable. I don't trust my hearing. And as all of us get older, they get less and less reliable. Our five senses are not the most certain way that we can measure the universe. What do we actually live by? What actually drives our actions every day? It's love. Everything that we do comes from what we love, good or bad. Some people love the wrong things. Some people put their love in the wrong order of importance. But everything that we do comes from what we love. Everything that we believe comes from what we love. The Pharisees saw Jesus. They saw him do miracles. The Pharisees heard him teach, and they killed him. The disciples saw Jesus, and they locked the door and stayed in the room. So if you think that seeing or hearing is the end-all, be-all, you're wrong. It will not make you more certain. It didn't work in the Bible times, and it won't work now. What will work is love. We don't believe because of something we saw. We believe because we're in love, and that is the highest form of certainty. But the world that we live in wants to see. The world that we live in wants to know before it will believe. The world we live in is like Thomas. It's like the disciples. Unless I can see it, I cannot believe it. And so as we close here, this two-week study of truth that we've been doing, um, I want to leave you with some practical things. I want to give you some things that you can take home and do now while you're locked in this upper room. Some practices and habits and disciplines you can build so that when we get to leave the upper room, we're equipped and we're prepared to do our mission, which is to testify to the truth. First, like we talked about last week, you can't testify to the truth if you don't know what it is. You can't measure your life against the ruler of reality if you don't know what it is, if you don't know who he is. God gave us four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. They're full of his actions, his miracles, his teachings, the way he treated people, the way he talked about the world and the church and us. Do you know it? Have you read it? Have you been reading it? You say you worship Jesus and that he's the Lord of your life. Do you know what he said? Have you studied it? Do you feel like you've read it once and so you can check out because you get the gist of it? If Jesus is the truth, if he's going to be the way you measure reality, you have to know what he said. And if you're going to share that truth with other people, you have to know what it is. So that's the first thing. If you spent this time that we've been locked up and you haven't been studying God's word and reading about who Jesus is, that is the first thing to start to do. The next thing that we can do to get ready for this evangelism, and again, I just want to leave you with some practical things here at the end while we've been talking about truth of how to share it, is to practice for evangelism. And I know that evangelism is kind of a scary concept. It kind of raises my blood pressure. I'm like, whoa, I don't, I'm scared. I'm, I'm nervous. I'm going to have to talk to people. What if I don't know what to say? So I just want to give you a few very practical things that have helped me. The first is practice out loud with somebody. It'll be the most awkward thing of your life. But once you do it once, it'll be so much easier when you're in the real conversation. And a few things that you can practice. Here's some practice conversations for you to try. Try it with your family. Uh, try it alone if it feels too awkward. But practice telling your testimony. All of us have a story. Stories are the most powerful and persuasive thing in the world. And you have a story. A story of salvation. A way that God has changed your life. Practice telling it in 60 seconds. 
I was like this. This is what I did, who I thought I was. Here's how God came into my life. Here's how he changed me. These are the ways that I'm different now. 60 seconds. If you tell that to somebody who's never heard a story like that, it could change their life. Another thing to practice. Learn how to summarize what the gospel means. Again, you can do it in 60 seconds. Just learn, here's what the gospel means. God came into the world. Here's what he did. Here's how it happened. He died. He rose from the dead. Here's what that means. Learn how to summarize the message of the Bible. And if you don't know it, again, you need to be reading that. You need to be reading the truth, reading the Bible. But if somebody who's never read the Bible before might ask you, well, what does it mean? Are you ready for that question? Learn how to summarize. Say, well, it starts in Genesis, you know, and there's this kingdom called Israel that God cried. Here's how it works. And then Jesus came. Know how to talk somebody through it in just a couple of minutes so that when that question comes, you're ready for it. This is just a very practical thing. I've been put in a situation where I got asked a question like that, and I was not ready for it. By just practicing a couple of times, you can be. And the last thing I'll tell you, that, that's helped me the most. And I'll, I want to uh, first say that almost all the situations I've been in that involve conversations with evangelism have been with millennials. And so this last one is most useful, I think, for younger people. But for anybody, try and learn a few quick answers, just a short kind of condensed answer to some of the most common questions that you're going to get asked. My anxiety when I'm going to tell somebody about Christianity is always because I'm scared of what they're going to ask me. What if I don't know the answer? In my experience, there's about five questions that you always get asked. Most people have the same few objections to Christianity. And the reason is because that's not their real objection. They just don't want to change the way they're living. But our culture has trained us to have the same five or so objections. And I'll tell you right now, if you can answer these couple of questions in a short kind of soundbite way, then you can dig deeper and engage in somebody's life. So how can you trust the Bible? How do you know the Bible's true? Isn't the Bible just some fake thing that's been translated and you can't even trust it anymore? Someone's going to ask you that. Why does a loving God allow suffering in the world? Uh, what about all the hypocritical Christians? What about all the bad things the church has done in the past? Uh, how could a loving God oppose homosexuality? How do you know your religion is true and not all the other religions? Maybe those are true. How do you know yours is true? If you can answer those five questions in just 60 seconds, I know that's way more complicated than a short answer, but if you have a short answer in your head to where you can say, well, here's a verse I could point you to. Here's the basic truth, and I'm happy to talk with you more about it. Practice it for a few minutes, and you'll be ready when those questions come. You can change somebody's life. You can break down a barrier to listening to the truth about Christianity that they've never been able to break through before. So just, I just wanted to give you a few practical things, but know your Bible, know what Jesus actually said. Practice giving your testimony in 60 seconds. Learn how to summarize what the gospel means to you and what the message of the Bible is, and then learn the answers to a couple of the most common questions that you're bound to be asked so that you're ready when the time comes. If you can just do those few things, when the doors open, when we get back into the world, you will be so much more confident to engage people in doing the, the task that Jesus left us with. As the Father has sent me to testify to the truth, I am sending you. And it's not on you to convert anybody. It's not on you to save anybody's soul. The Holy Spirit will convict people. The Holy Spirit will judge people, not us. We speak the truth. We testify to the truth like Jesus did in love. How resilient are you in your evangelism? Not for God. How resilient are you in the way that you evangelize for your favorite TV show to your friends? How resilient are you in evangelizing for your favorite restaurant? How resilient are you in evangelizing for your political views or for your views on various social issues that you feel passionately about? How easy is it for you to bring that up? How easy is it for you to not back down in the face of confrontation when you're evangelizing for those things? The disciples, they wouldn't bring it up because they were afraid. What are you afraid of? No one is going to give you an invitation 
As Christians, we don't go when we're invited. We don't wait for an invitation. We're the ones that go out. We're the ones that give the invitations, that do the inviting. We can't sit around and worry about whether they're going to like us. They won't. I'll spoil it for you now. They won't. People don't like to be told the truth. They don't like to have a ruler held up to their crooked lines and told that this is not straight objectively. When Jesus told the truth perfectly, in perfect love, they killed him for it. So we won't be liked for doing this. So if you're worried, what if I'm not liked? You won't be. I can guarantee it now. This is our mission. This is the truth that we have been trusted with, the truth of reality that we can give to this world that believes so many lies. Our modern world and our culture refuses to believe in anything that it can't see, in anything that it can't hear or touch, and they think we're insane for believing and worshiping and centering our lives around something that we freely admit we've never laid eyes on and never will. But Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's our story, and that's the story that we proclaim to the people around us. I want to close by reading you a verse. You don't have to turn there. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter was one of Jesus' other disciples who got to see and who had a lot of trouble believing. But later in his life, he was writing a letter, 1 Peter, to Christians who he knew hadn't seen. And he wrote this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for coming to earth to reveal to us what is true. For giving us a way to fight back against the father of lies, our enemy, and against this culture of lies that cannot believe in truth. We thank you for filling us with inexpressible and glorious joy. We thank you for all the different ways every day that you confirm to us the reality of the kingdom of God through your word, through our family, through church, through nature, through the joy and the peace that we feel in our hearts from our belief in you, and most of all, for our own salvation. Forgive us when we ask you for more. Thank you for giving us everything that we need. God, I pray for everyone listening this morning and for myself that you fill us with resilience in proclaiming this truth to the world. Help us not to fear disapproval more than we love the truth that you gave us. We trust you with our future, and we trust you with our witness, and we trust you with our testimony. In Jesus' name.